morning. I'm not going to say that I hate all of you, but just to let you know, we moved this last weekend from the far southeast corner of Iowa City up to North Liberty, and our hope was that we would get to enjoy being 20 seconds away from North Campus, and I was in uh, our campus meeting here at staff meeting, and we were going through all the details, and Will said, uh, I, well, I said, I, I can't wait to see Devin get baptized. I wish I could be there. And he says, well, you will be. You're preaching at North Campus. So I could be in bed right now because it's only a 20-second drive for the 1030 service at North, but here I am, wet and tired, and I guess we're ready to go. How's that for an introduction to a sermon? On top of that, I cremated my back yesterday hauling things or a couple days ago, and so uh, it's just been a wonderful morning. I got up, and to be truthful, uh, as I'm looking at this passage, I'm like, Lord, I'm just not feeling it. I got to get into this, and uh, God has done a wonderful thing uh, by giving me a wife who doesn't listen to my whining and kicks me and gets me going. I'm not a person of change. I like to be in one place. Uh, I've only moved a couple times in my life. Uh, I think that the next time we feel the need to move, I'm just going to stay. The people who move into our place will wonder what is that sitting there in their living room, and it will be there forever. But uh, who knows what God's going to have for us. Well, I appreciate Casey reading the passage this morning. Let's have a word of prayer, see if we can get things started here. Father, just as we were pray, uh, singing just a second ago, free, free, absolutely free. Help us to forget just for the moment, Lord, the things that we're worried about, the things that we're in pain about, the things that just don't seem right to us. Whatever's crowding into our minds right now, in our hearts, we ask for that freedom. Lord, you did the ultimate act. You went to that cross. You took upon yourself our sin. And because of that, we have new life. Lord, we are obedient to you. Wherever you say to go, we will go. Whatever you say to do, we will do. Forgive us for our limitations, for our very human responses at times to life. God, you are the one worthy of praise and honor and glory, and it's to you that we say thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. We pray now that as we open your word and look at it, that we will have agreement uh, as a body of Christ as to our commission and what we're supposed to be about. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Celebrity. We act differently around celebrities, don't we? I'm not sure what the mystique is in America, but we imbue certain people with qualities that come close to how the Greeks used to see their own gods. Our celebrities have the ability and means to live in a different stratosphere than most of us, and they're constantly in the news. Why? Well, because, as some would argue, most societies need gods in their lives. Beings whose existence is superior to ours and they exist to give us focus and sort of a noblesse oblige, right? They, in other words, they're capable of returning gifts to us, uh, whether that's their presence or actual presence. 
as much as they complain of being basically worshipped in our society, they would have it no other way. Yet when we see a celebrity, it's a cause to stop in our tracks, uh, take notice. Some would even press for an autograph or take a selfie with them. It makes for headlines in local newspapers and creates memories we won't forget. What's your celebrity encounter? What's happened in your life when somebody was around who's really famous? My celebrity encounter was, and here's my age showing, I had an opportunity to meet a very famous singer. Uh, probably a lot of you have never heard of her. I was working in Dallas, Texas for a courier company while I was in seminary. Uh, we were a very expensive, very exclusive courier company. That was our niche in the business community. Uh, we were all seminary students, grad students. We dressed in ties and had wingtip shoes. In fact, it was called wingtip couriers. And we only delivered professional documents. Or if you were willing to pay for it, we basically would deliver anything. Uh, I remember one time I had an attorney who was the managing partner at a huge law firm in downtown Dallas. And around 1 o'clock, I got a call on the radio saying that uh, Mr. Johnson wanted a tuna sandwich from the deli. Now, this is going to be a $325 sandwich back in 1981. And uh, we didn't hesitate. I was dispatched to the deli, picked it up, brought it to him. Well, in this time, uh, I got sent to a house where it looked pretty nice. It wasn't the nicest house in Dallas, but it was obviously a place where somebody of importance lived. Um, Upon ringing the doorbell, a lady came to the door who had obviously just awakened. Uh, it turned out that this was Connie Francis, the singer from the late 50s and early 60s. All right? Uh, Nancy over here chuckled, so you're also showing your age, Nancy. She invited me to uh, step in uh, to what had proved to be virtually an empty house. She actually lived only in a couple of rooms in the back. The rest was set up for a party, and I had party favors strung throughout the house. When she realized why I was there, she rushed to her <clears throat> back room, brought forward a, a sheaf of papers, and handed them to me. And she explained that this is the only copy of the autobiography that she'd been working on. One of her most famous songs is Who's Sorry Now? And that was the name of her book and as she gave it to me she said here's what I want you to do I want you to run this to the local copier I want to have two copies made and then wait there and then bring them back and I was like hmm okay and she said and I just want you to understand young man that this is the only copy now this is pre-computers this was not typed up on a Mac or an IBM she had typed this on her little typewriter and so this was the only copy of her autobiography, and she impressed upon me how important it was that I do this and do it correctly. Well, I, it kind of gave me the yips to do this. I thought, man, of all the great stories this would tell someday if I accidentally let the wind blow this out of my hand or if it got wet or any number of things that had happened over the years to us as couriers. But I did the best that I could, and I took it to the copier, took about three hours, this again, another day, for them to make two copies of this probably 300-page document. 
I took it back to her house, and oh, was she grateful. She was so thankful. While I had been gone, my friends are talking to me on our radio, saying, Dave, you know who Connie Francis is, don't you? Well, you know, where the boys are, you know, who's sorry now? And I'm like, eh, sort of, a little bit, you know. And they said, oh, she was the most famous singer of her time. No one was bigger. No one had sold more songs. This is her life story. So the second time I went back to return the document to her, now I'm paying attention to her, like, really, you're that important? Wow. And as I gave it to her, I, I couldn't help but think how uncelebrity-like she appeared. In fact, she seemed rather sad. There was no one else in her life. She didn't have a family. Uh, she didn't have people running around. She just was by herself. She invited me in, took it. It was kind of awkward. She didn't know whether to just tell me to go on my way, to give me a tip. Most people in my profession, we just did our duty, we left. But she made me stand there for a while in her house. And after a while, she just said, thank you, I appreciate this. And she said, would you like a signed photo? Why not? So I got a signed photo, which I still have, actually. I wish if we hadn't been moving, I think I could have found it and brought it with me this morning. But still, it didn't make that much of an impact on me. I, do, I wasn't that familiar with her at that time. But she was a celebrity. What's your celebrity story this morning? Now, you might be thinking, well, that's great, Dave. That's, that's wonderful. But what does that have to do with John chapter 17, our passage for this morning? Well, my point is this, that these disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, had started their relationship with a man who like them, was a Galilean. Uh, he was a man totally unknown, a teacher, uh, but yet not a teacher that the world knew about, a man whose hands were calloused from hard work, just like theirs. He was the antithesis to celebrity. He was not famous, but yet now, here we are at the end of his ministry life, in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, and after three years of ministry, of being with him and seeing miracles and wonders, it had begun to gradually dawn upon them that in fact, Jesus himself is quite the celebrity, the most important and true celebrity the world would ever know. The disciples learning to, or listening to Jesus on how to pray uh, we're watching him on this occasion as he prays his high priestly prayer as we refer to it and they're just staring at him maybe they didn't re quite realize how important Jesus had been but now it's beginning to really impact them we're not told if all 11 of them are listening to this prayer or just a few of them however we do know that what Jesus wanted them to hear was that he was praying so different from how they prayed. Who were they exactly listening to? Surely by this time it began to dawn on them that they were actually in the presence of God. Not a God, but the God. If you and I can be brought to a total standstill because we see a singer or a professional athlete or even the president of the United States, wow, what would it have been like to be in the presence of God? 
I mean, Jesus had been gradually teaching them who he is and demonstrating to them through his miracles what he was doing. But most of all, he was telling them and demonstrating to them that he was God. His prayer, this prayer that we're studying is for his disciples. It shifted their concept of reality. God speaking to God. That's what this prayer is. It's not just a man petitioning, interceding. It's God having a conversation. This truth may have been hard for them to grasp at first. I mean, when you see a person every day doing everyday things, and then all of a sudden, that person does something that is impossible, at least for a human being, you kind of have that like matrix-like experience. How does this happening? It, it just shifted reality. What I thought was true no longer is true. What I thought was impossible is no longer impossible. Take one of the lesser-known disciples, James the Lesser, for sake of argument. Did he wake up this morning or a morning close to this time and say to himself, whoa, I think Jesus is God. I mean, I knew he was important. I knew that he was possibly the Messiah, but I never really put it together. That's the way we function, isn't it, as people? Things that are so obvious or should have been obvious to us, it takes a while for us to understand that Jesus is God. Hundreds of questions must have poured into his mind, acting as some kind of counterbalance to this fanciful thought, but yet there it was every time, undeniable. This man... This guy, I, I met his mother, Mary. I've seen his brothers and his sisters. He works just like I work to make a living. And yet, he's God. People sometimes argue, did Jesus really claim to be God? Oh, yeah. Especially in the Gospel of John. It is, if nothing else, the ultimate statement of Christ's divinity. In his own way, Jesus had become, for them, a celebrity. We imbue that word with so many layers of meaning in our day and age. Celebrity, it usually means wealthy, at least somebody who has great wealth. Jesus was wealthy, even if he chose to empty himself of this wealth when he became a man. Brilliance? Hmm. Some celebrities are brilliant, Jesus demonstrated this brilliance when he argued with people in his age who taught the word of God. He always won. Yet, most of the biblical scholars of his day didn't really know him. Talented? Yes, Jesus was talented. But not in the way that a celebrity seems to be talented. It wasn't singing, it wasn't dancing, it wasn't an achievement of some other kind that people really cheer for but he was talented as only the creator can be talented. He created all things according to the word. I believe it took so long for these men to appreciate the full depth of the personhood of Jesus because frankly, no one had ever considered before that God would walk and talk like a man. After all, this was the problem brought forth in the Old Testament, isn't it? God seemed to be unknowable untouchable, so otherworldly. Who can relate to that? 
I mean, that was exactly the reason that Israel demanded that God provide for them a king in the Old Testament, a stand-in, if you will, for God, a human representation of God here on earth, someone that they could talk to, touch, reason with, experience life as they experience life. Yet that simply did not do justice to what they were needing. A king was too human to even begin to represent God and too transcendent to approximate a regular man. This experiment ended in disaster as any man-made king proved incapable of withstanding the temptations of unlimited power. Even the most godly man like King David wantonly murdered, adulterated, and ignored the commands of God and served in some ways to lead the whole entire nation of Israel deeper into judgment. Yet people still craved to know God. Let's look at it this in a different way. Who exactly is God? And why does he seem so distant, so unapproachable? We're used to thinking of God in terms like creator, sustainer, provider, protector. He's the one who, it says in the book of Job, knows how to lasso the wind, creates the lightning bolt, arranges the stars. He can access the rain cloud. He knows how to manage lions, ostriches, and the mysterious Leviathan. Such facts are sure to make us stand in awe, but at the same time keep us at arm's length. How can one know such a person? How do you get that close to such a person? Our celebrities, eventually given enough fame and wealth, will build many barricades, if you will, small worlds where they're the god of that world. They keep everyone else at arm's length. Uh, you can't come near, you can't approach. We'll dress up in makeup and, and disguises so that we can go out in public because otherwise the hoi polloi get too close and it's just uncomfortable and maybe I fear for my life. That wasn't God's intent, but it sure seemed it was that way. How else do you explain that this same God existed in only the Holy of Holies? He, he chose to keep his focus on one place, and that person, that God, could only be accessed one day of the year by the high priest, who had to be cleansed and prepared in order for him to have this annual appointment with him. Celebrity of the highest status. John Feiberg, in his book, No One Like Him, tells us who God is, essentially. When we think of God, and we use terms like creator, sustainer, and so forth, the ancients had another way of looking at God. They were trying to reason who is God. And they came up with some things. First of all, they say God is absolute, which means he's internally, totally unrelated to this world. He bears no relationship to the world, at least in the way that we do. He cannot make an impact upon him. Secondly, God is also perfect. He cannot become better than he is. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's already the best. God is pure actuality. This takes us back to some reasoning we may have been familiar with with Aristotle. Everything but God is a combination of actuality and potentiality. In other words, all things can grow and change, but not God. He is. He just is. 
Aquinas reasons that God in his perfection is without the possibility of becoming even more per perfect. He is 100% perfect already. Also, God is necessary. God exists necessarily and is not contingent for his being upon anything or anyone else. All other things can come into being or go out of being, not God. By his very definition, God must exist. He brings all other things into existence. Nothing can act upon him. It also means his various divine attributes are necessary to his being. He cannot suspend them or grow into them. He doesn't choose to some days be holy and other days he's having an off day and he's not so holy like I. They are, in fact, him. These are what he is all about. There are no claims about him that happen to be true but need not be true. Every truth about God is necessary. God is immutable. This means that God is devoid of change and in fact cannot change. He's not capricious. He is changeless in his attributes, wills, and purposes. His knowledge is unchangeable and so are his relationships. He cannot forego some action which he intends to do. It seems so strange to us as people because that's how we operate. Lastly, God is timeless. Christians have always wrestled with what does an eternal God mean? Does God exist within time, outside of time? Most have settled with God working outside of time. He cannot experience temporal succession. And so when we try to understand who this God is, we must ask ourselves, who can relate to such a being? God's people, his chosen people in the Old Testament ask that question. Who can relate to such a being? He's there, no doubt. We can't deny his presence. We saw the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire in the days of Moses. We saw the sea split apart. We see him do many miracles. He expresses his judgment against us through the mouths of his prophets when we sin. But do we have a relationship with him? Do we really know him? Can one know God? He's the celebrity of celebrities, the king of kings. And anything that even begins to approximate an imitation of God must, by definition, fall ingloriously short. No way. No way. It cheapens God when we think of him in terms of people that we respect the most or people that have the most admiration in our society. All of us before God are just humble beings. We are the created appealing to our creator. Even an imperfect king would be a man that can be touched with our personhood. It would certainly understand and relate to us, this king, yet as we can so easily see in reading the history of Israel, that was never the case. So, the Old Testament closes. The prophecy of Malachi closes the Old Testament and the doors of God's throne room shut. Closing off this omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent being from his people. Or so it would seem. 400 years of silence between the closing of the Old Testament and where we are this morning in the New Testament. His chosen people, Israel, hears not a word from him, and no one else, no other people group in the world have any call upon God. 
have any experience of dealing with this immutable, actual, necessary being. It's a time of great despair. It would have to be a time of feeling so alone. The vast loneliness of eternity seems to doom mankind to futility and despair. But then God speaks. This time it is with the voice of a man, or rather, the cry of a baby. Almost secretly, without royal fanfare or any man-made jubilees, God enters our world. Impossible. We just define God in such a way that, that it would be impossible for God to become us. Yet nevertheless, by his will, it happened. And now... After 33 years of life and ministry, these 11 men, unlike anyone else in the history before them or since, have the privilege of hearing the member of the eternal trinity speak to another member of that trinity with the utmost intimacy and love. And what is this God speaking about? He's praying about them. They're not sharing the inner workings of the Trinity. They're not talking to each other about what life has been like for them in the 30-some years since Christ has been on earth. This prayer is focused right here and as it will be through the end upon his people, those that God gave to him, the ones that he is speaking to, so let's look a little bit closer at what exactly this God, this celebrity, is saying. And remember, these disciples are listening like you and I would. What, what did he say? What's he saying? And he says in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now this is the only time in all of the Gospels that the title Holy Father is used. Holy Father, this is a tie-in to the Old Testament. Immediately, they understand that this person that they have been following and ministering to and watching is the same God that was with Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph with King David and Solomon and the prophets Jesus is making that necessary tie-in. Holy Father. We talked last week about how it was very common in Jewish circles for people to pray with their arms uplifted and their faces looking at the heavens. And yet, in that very act, there was not an imitation of holiness. It was an act of holiness. We couldn't possibly understand God talking to God, and yet... He was talking for our understanding. Holy Father. I love that line. In verse 11, you are that God. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Oh, the unity is so important for the people of God. I want them to be one, you and I, together. Just like we are one in the Trinity, so we need to be one as the body of Christ. 
The Apostle Paul would pick up on this theme in his writings and his epistles. He would say, we are one. There is but one God, one Lord, one Spirit. And we are unified, those of us who know him as the Lord and Savior. God, I am praying that they may be one. Next time you feel like starting a fight with someone in this church, picking on somebody because you don't like what they said or how they did it, you think that there's something that needs to be corrected, just remember, whatever your goal is, it has to be unity. That's Jesus' prayer for his men. Keep them as one. These guys had nothing in common. I mean, they were from Galilee, certainly, and some of them were fishermen. But there's also a tax collector thrown in for good measure, right? There's guys with each have strong personalities. They come from different places, different life experiences. If there was ever going to be grounds for disunity, it would be among these apostles. But in fact, Jesus says, please keep them as one, as you and I are one. While I was with them, verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Two things that Jesus done. I have kept them in your name, and I have guarded them. These men are important. What does that say? You're listening to this, and you realize he's talking about you, right? Oh, Beth, I've kept you in my name. I want you to be part of this body, of this group. You are so important to me. No one may have you. God sent me on a commission to this world to be his son, to die and to give my life as a ransom for many. And in return, I choose you and you and you and you. None of you, I want to escape this. One got away. Who's that one? Well, of course, it's Judas. He's speaking to these 11 that used to be 12. But the one has identified Christ as the one that is going to be given over to the high priest and his lynch party. And he says, take him. And I lost him. But he had a, a prophesied purpose in what he was doing. That doesn't relieve him of the responsibility for the role that he played when he betrayed Christ, but he had a prophesied purpose. Otherwise, all of these men are going to stay together in the sense of they have unity of purpose and scope, though they may have difference in ministry. That son of destruction label about Judas Iscariot uh, is part of the typology of evil personages seen throughout history who have opposed the church. There's always going to be a Judas in our midst, right? Somebody that it should be on our side, but proves themselves to be false. Now, just by that title, son of destruction, as used elsewhere, son of perdition. That should conjure up in our minds what? Somebody who's wholly evil. You know, we're close to Halloween. We, it's easy to think of demonic figures, people with horns and a, and a forked tail. But that's not who usually is opposing the mission of Christ. Unfortunately, sometimes it's the very people that are given the task of guarding the church. In thinking that we're doing what God would have us to do, we sometimes don't see when Christ has arrived 
in the life and personhood of another person and they're starting a mission and we get in the way I, I remember well uh, being a high schooler and, and I came from a culture I had long hair and all that kind of stuff and I remember my friends telling me I can't believe you're going to church Foster do you know what those people are like they're not going to accept you you don't come from them they're going to judge you and you know thankfully they were wrong my local, local Baptist church which didn't believe in playing cards or going to movies or having facial hair or any of those standard Christian so important ethical convictions they took a guy that did all those things and more you see we as a church need to be looking at the borders of our church and saying are we giving a message that all are received that all can come or do we feel like it's our job to stand guard over what the Holy Spirit is already doing See, that son of perdition. Remember Judas's role? Oh, why are you using that expensive perfume? What a waste. Think of all the poor people that could have been helped with it. What was his real motive? He was greedy. If somebody walked in here wearing a tattered T-shirt, wearing shorts, smelling, would we accept him? Would we recognize that God is working in their life? Oh, I've seen it too in, in the lives of other people that we would think never would play this role. But often I see it in the roles of parents. You say, well, that's a strange thing to throw at the feet of a mom and a dad, but it's true. I have seen kids that have responded to the call of God in their lives and they're saying to their parents, hey, God wants me to do this. I want to be a missionary. I want to do something for God. And who opposes them? It's not the church. It's not people in the church. It's their own parents. So many times I've had kids listening to God in a sermon, feeling the leading of the Holy Spirit, pricking their hearts at age 18, 17, 16, saying, I want you. Come enlist in my army. Be the person that I, I want you to be. Uh, these 11 had experienced that. I'm sure that their families weren't real excited about them forsaking their family businesses and, and running around the countryside with this unknown itinerant preacher. But they did it anyway. I had kids who will say, God has called me. And the thought immediately, and I understand this, it goes in your hearts, doesn't it, mom and dad? If you do this, then the plans I have for you they're out the window. You're going to go be a missionary where? How am I going to see my grandkids? How are we going to keep in touch? I've lived my life in such a way that you now are the whole purpose of my life. And if you are not going to go the way that I want you to go, what does that mean for us? That son of destruction happens in many walks of life. We have to be careful that we are leading those that we love by praying for them, by leading by example, by asking God, what do you mean for them in their lives? I remember with each of my girls, I knew that the biggest hindrance to their spiritual growth was going to be in reality probably me. Yeah, you said, well, you're a pastor, you're 
you're here at the church all the time, you're, you're a man of God, but yeah, I have my own desires for my girls. I always in my mind envision what life would be like when they're grown up and I had grandkids and I had things I could do with them. But I knew that that wasn't necessarily the way that God was going to deal with them. You see, we're not here in a permanent sense. Just like these disciples, this time was so special as they were praying this prayer, as they were listening to Jesus get into this. Father, as we are one, I, you called them in your name. Keep them in your name. And I have protected them, and I'm going to pray for them that the evil one will not get in the way. God, I, I can do no less. As my girls came into this world, I remember my wife and I would just say, Father, they're yours. They're not mine. I'm here temporarily as a caregiver, as a provider. All those things that you are through me to them. But ultimately, whatever decision they make in you, I will support. It's not easy. It's not easy. You see, it's not the devils of this world that get in the way of the mission of the church. It's the well-meaning people those people that love us the most sometimes because we care so much we don't stop and ask God what is he doing in this kid's life that I saw make so many mistakes that I took to the emergency room that I've cheered on at games and that I pumped into them so that academically they could be successful no God says too bad they're mine I have a different plan a different purpose you could never seen it coming I am God I've won the right to own their life because of what I did on the cross for them. And Jesus right now is praying for these men that they would not be twisted aside, they would not be hindered by, they would not be impeded by the evil one. And we've got to be sure that we're doing the same thing. What's the mission that you've been asked by the Lord to do in your life? Ask the Lord, what am I supposed to be doing? What are the people in my life supposed to be doing? Am I helping that commission or am I hindering it? Know that right now, just like he is for these 11, Jesus is praying for you. You have your own mission. When we have kids, when we have people that we love, eventually they're going to leave. And then we have all kinds of possibilities, maybe even while they're still with us, to do ministry. It's a time of new beginnings. I started this sermon off by saying, oh, I'm in this house, I don't like change, and I don't. But I'm not in charge of my life. God's in charge of my life. I don't know what he has coming. Sometimes it scares me. But I do know this, I can trust him. Whatever Jesus did for me, some 2,000 years ago on that cross when that immutable, unchangeable, necessary, actual being went to that cross and had himself nailed there at that time and at that place, though it means for all eternity, I will be in his presence. I will be saved. I am now given my life. It's forfeit to him. What you want, Christ, is more important than what I want for myself, for my wife, for my kids, and for this church. Are you real comfortable? Have you experienced opposition? I challenge you this morning, if you get nothing else of what I've said today, 
If you're not experiencing opposition by what you're doing in your life for Christ, then you're probably not listening. Because you see, Christ says the world hates Christ. That's why they put him on that tree. And because they hated Christ, they must hate us. Either that, or we're doing a great job of playing secret Christian. The more that we're out there for Christ, the more that the world will stand in opposition to us. It's not supposed to be an easy walk. It's not supposed to be something that we can just do, like getting up and going to work. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be a step of faith. And Jesus says, I'm praying for you. We're tent makers. That's what we are. We're tent makers. We're not here to build big houses and live lives that are secure and firm. We're not here to make ourselves feel like we don't have anything to worry about financially or otherwise. We're tent makers. We're here temporarily. And the time that we have, we must maximize for the kingdom of God. That's what John is saying. And as we do that, Jesus is praying for us. He did it. Now he's praying for us as his followers that we would do it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, that we have a commission, a purpose. And I thank you most of all that Christ knows us by name. He knows every part of us. And he's praying for us. Praying for us, Father, to be those kind of people that follow in obedience, against opposition, that we do not get discouraged, that we not focus on this life, but that we focus on the future. Father, in your son, Jesus Christ, you and all of your complexity and otherworldliness become a man, a man that we can walk and touch and hear and feel and love. In that strength and in that power, Lord, may we leave here ready to do the great commission that you've called us to. And I ask this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.